0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing I've Loved You So Long, and I'll kick us off. I've Loved You So Long came out in 2008. It stars Kristen Scott Thomas as Juliette, a woman who has gotten out of a French prison after a 15-year sentence. It's not easy to get a 15-year sentence in France. She must have been convicted of a serious crime. But when Juliette is reunited with her sister, they don't want to talk about it. We only find out what she did when she tries to get a job. A potential employer demands to know how on earth she managed to get such a long sentence. When Juliet tells the man she killed her son, a six-year-old boy, her would-be employer tells her to get out. Despite the seriousness of Juliet's crime, her sister, Leah, played by Elsa Zilberstein, takes her into her home. It's awkward at first. Leia's husband doesn't trust Juliet around the couple's two adopted daughters. But slowly, over time, Juliet connects with the kids and is increasingly trusted with watching them. The director, Philippe Claudel, spent several years teaching in a prison. In an interview with The Independent a decade ago, Claudel claims it would have been impossible for him to make this film if he had not spent so much of his time in and around jails. There's a potential love interest for Juliet in this film. A professor named Michel Claudel gives Michel his own real-life backstory, having Michel empathize with Juliette based on his years of experience teaching in prisons. Juliet does seem fond of him, but feels unready to reciprocate his advances. Eventually, Leia discovers the reason Juliet killed her son. Apparently, the son was terminally ill, and Juliette decided to put him out of his misery. She felt enormous guilt for having done this and believed it was right for her to go to prison. There is an emotional moment when the intimacy that the sisters have been working toward throughout the film is finally reestablished in its fullness. Shortly thereafter, the film ends. This is a film with firmly defined strengths and weaknesses. It is well acted, and many of the small scenes used to develop the characters are extraordinary. There are these wonderful moments where some character or other will attempt to get intimate with Juliet, only to find that she is unable to reciprocate. These scenes could be bleak and depressing but are often played for laughs. At one point, Juliet has casual sex with a man she meets in a bar. Afterwards, he asks if it was good. No, she says, but it doesn't matter. We get a very brief shot of the man's confused, unhappy expression, and the scene abruptly ends. At another stage, one of the bureaucrats in charge of managing Juliet's transition to private life tries to get Juliet to discuss why she did not say anything in her own defense at her own trial. Juliet immediately stings her. Do you think I'm going to open up to you now? Again, we get the hurt, sad look on the bureaucrat's face, but only for a moment before the scene terminates. I laughed a lot. Despite the dark subject matter, the film was often very pleasant. This pleasantness makes the film more watchable, at the cost of some of its philosophical integrity. I found both the beginning and end of the film decidedly weak. The film does not begin by forcing us to confront the crime. We instead begin with the sister rushing around in an airport with a bunch of shaky cam cinematography. Since we are never made to look at the crime, we never fully confront what Juliet did, and this makes it easier for us to find her endearing and funny. In Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, you must sit through the murder of the pawnbroker so that you can be made to despise Raskolnikov, even if just for a moment. If you do not experience a feeling of utter contempt, of moral disgust, Of sheer horror, your ability to forgive the criminal is not properly tested or developed. Then, at the end of the film, Claudel gives Juliet an excuse for her crime. Because she killed her son because he was terminally ill, and not because of postpartum depression or some other psychological problem, it is much easier for the audience to sympathize with her situation. To be sure, Claudel has Juliet say that she feels there's no excuse for what she did but by having her take responsibility, he only makes her appear contrite, and therefore more excuse-worthy. A better film would have forced the viewer to confront the act, offered no excuse for it, and then challenged the viewer to accept a redemption arc purely on the basis that Juliet is an ex-con who, having served her sentence, is just trying to find a way to make her way through life. Is she to be shunned and ostracized forever because of what she did? Or can she find a way back into society, even supposing she killed her son in a fit of rage? I said something similar on air about Three Billboards last time out. Sometimes films want to make a point, but are uncomfortable going all the way. They soften the point, becoming more entertaining and more marketable in the process. But if you care about what's being said, the fact that the film becomes more pleasant to watch isn't necessarily a good thing. I'm reminded of something Plato says in The Gorges. At 464-465, to 465, Plato argues that for every craft there is an ersatz counterpart grounded on flattery. This counterpart is an imitation of the original. Plato writes that, quote, It takes no thought at all of whatever is best, with the lure of what is pleasant at the moment. It sniffs out folly and hoodwinks it, so that it gives the impression of being most deserving. He has Socrates give an example arguing that baking has put on the mask of medicine, that it pretends to know the foods that are best for the body. He writes that if a pastry baker and a doctor had to compete in front of children, or in front of men just as foolish as children, to determine which of the two is an expert on which food is good and which food is bad, the doctor would die of starvation, because no children at all would endorse his views. One gets the sense that Claudel has decided to add a little sugar to this film to ensure its success with the crowd. But to his credit, the film does make it very clear to the viewer that it could have played this a different way. At many points, the music and tone are ominous and foreboding. In this way, Claudel puts this other, better film in the viewer's mind, even if he ultimately does not show it to them. By making us think of what he could have shown us, it is almost as if he did. After all, we wouldn't be imagining that film if Claudel had not gone to such great lengths to make us wish we were seeing it. In a sense, he did create this other film, if only in our mind's eye. Maybe that's enough. Well, let's see what Helen thinks.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I had quite a different take to you because um, I guess the thing that I find interesting about this film is about uh, enigma, the impossibility of uh, communication and the tragedy that's engendered by not speaking. By this, like, addiction, and um, so you know the, the way I see the, this this quote unquote murder is that this mother had no choice. So she's a doctor, and she has a, a son who is very. I mean, it's, it is like fairly contrived, right? <laughs> it's quite a sort of contrived story. But the um, she has a, a son who has this terminal illness, and she gets some blood test results, and um, this is nothing. We don't know this until the very end of the film, um, and the son is. Um, you know, diagnosed with sure she as a pediatrician diagnoses the son with this terrible illness and she decides to euthanize. Well, I don't know, do you call it euthanizing when the child doesn't know? But she decides to take the life of her own son. And um so she she's in prison for fifteen years and she her set long sentences is because she doesn't speak. She can't she doesn't defend herself in the um court case she can't speak her family doesn't know and there is a history so this this sister of hers that she's gone to live with is much younger and um, the mother who now has Alzheimer's so is silent in her own way or withdrawn in sort of the prison of her mind and in, in, in her own way and also is you know she's English she has a different language this is a French film um prevented the younger sibling from from um getting close to uh, Juliet. And there is this sort of, there's there's her father, and also she's living with this, her sister and her sister's husband is um, dumb, is sort of unable to speak after a stroke or something. So there is this sort of um, real theme the entire time of uh, non-communication, of choosing not to speak, of the impossibility of articulating certain things. And there's also, you know, Juliet, because she's not speaking, she becomes this sort of en- enigmatic figure. She's sort of enigmatic in the eyes of the viewer as well, because we don't know until the very end what she's done. Um, and she sort of inspires some, um, you know, some men like her, including one of um, her sister's colleagues, who kind of refers to her, this Juliette des which is the name of a Fellini movie, this mysterious woman. Who is she? Who is Juliette? Like, he doesn't know. But I think the thing is that this, this says something about... Um, Sub, human subjectivity as such. So we talked about um with three billboards, the idea of like tragedy in life and that there's only one way out. You know, we're all going to die eventually. We're going to lose every single um member of our family and all of our friends at a certain point. And there's different ways in which this happens and it's, you know, some aspects of life are more much more tragic than others. But at the same time it is life is tragic. And we're born into this tragedy. We're born into, as soon as we're born, we're heading towards death. And we are born to parents who will die and who in turn are born to parents who will die. And this this death in life um, is part of the kind of um, imperfection that makes life exist in the first place. And that imperfection, that sort of death um, in subjectivity is the unconscious. And this unconscious division means that there's always something within the human subject that's unsayable, that's unknowable, that in turn creates us as a human subject. So I was talking um, a lot about... uh, subjectivity and um, anxiety and how anxiety might relate to autism this week with some friends. And basically there's there's this well-known um, uh, image that Lacan gives of, this is how he describes anxiety. So the anxious person, the experience of anxiety, which is like the true, the only true emotion in a way, is, um, I mean, to, it, like anxiety is the symptom of subjectivity, of being a human subject, self-conscious thrown into this Chaosmos, born of parents who themselves are divided. Um, so the there is we are the anxious person is in front of the of a praying mantis, and a female praying mantis has um, kills ninety percent of the male praying mantises that she sleeps with. The person in front of the praying mantis, so we the anxious person, is wearing a mask, and it's the mask of a praying mantis, but we don't know if we're wearing a female praying mantis's mask or a male one and that is the experience of subjectivity it's like who am i for the other who am i in the eyes of the other who am i and this is this is the idea of gaze the like, gaze is seeing yourself in that kind of like eye of the female praying mantis like that 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 lack that lack in desire of that praying mantis looking back at you so this is what happens with um how we enter into subjectivity. So we're we're fetus is born too soon, we're part of our mother and at a certain point, you know, we, we, we grow up and we separate. And we, as we come into forming desire and forming subjectivity, forming desires is part of this becoming a subject. We are in the eyes of our mother um, bereft as to what she wants of us because we don't speak. She herself doesn't even know her own <laughs> desires in a way. The mysteries of the Egyptians are mystery to the Egyptians themselves. So we have to, come up with um, our, and I, you know, our identity in a way. We have to organise ourselves around this idea of what does my mother want of me? And we come up, our desire is basically we, this like silly childlike version of interpreting our mother's desire and um, becoming overwritten by our mother's desire. But it's not really our mother's desire, it's what we interpret our mother to want of us. And this is how then we become and we, uh, we have a subject with our own desires, we enter into language and the frustrations um, that come with being overwritten by desire and becoming a subject lead us to communicate. So the communication is always based on anxiety in the first place, based on this sort of gaze in the eyes of our mother, you know, like who are we in terms of the desire of our um, primary caregiver? So this this non-speech leads to speech and this question of like, What's there? What do they want? What's going on? Is always there, and we're always marked by it. And I think this film, like you know, however cat handedly it does it, it really um, brings forward this idea of enigma and the tragedy of non communication and um, the impossibility to articulate certain things. Like we we go through things in life that are unspeakable. Like life as such is unspeakable, and that's why we speak. Um, But there are certain things that we can't accept within our subjectivity. Um, You know, even we were just talking off air before this about material conditions, often a confrontation, we'd, we'd prefer to mystify rather than confront material conditions, because to actually acknowledge the reality of existing in the world we do can be really, really difficult. And this is where, you know, some, there, are, there are crutches that we can adopt, there are fantasies, there's sort of ways that we can deal with this, and sometimes religion and all these different things can, can offer a reprieve. But at a certain point, we do have to face reality. But there are some things like um, your child being uh, diagnosed by you as an expert in these illnesses with a terminal illness, and then making that decision to put your child out of his misery, is one of those things <laughs> that is sort of an echo of something that's really fundamental to human reality, human subjectivity as such, that is unspeakable. And this um, unspeakable tragedy has, has imprisoned um, this woman and has, uh, continues to ha- imprison her outside of prison. And this film is about her coming to be able to articulate that tragedy.
0: All right, let's hear what Nina has to say.
2: Hmm. Well, I I agree with both of your <laughs> readings. I had the same thought as uh, Benjamin regarding uh, punishment um, and the 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 other film that, that it could have been. And I th- I think like, I agree with Benjamin that it's it's hinted at in the menace in the muted uh, quality of the film. It's a very classy film. It's a very adult film. It has that kind of almost sort of. Uh, Reassuringly recognizable, you know, French level of, of sort of, you know, seriousness and entertainment that we've come to enjoy of, of, of this sort of film. Very middle class film, um, in many ways. And, but, but it's, you know, it's, I suppose this kind of question of what it is to be punished, um, you know, the, the kind of moral, the guilt that, that, uh, one feels for for not only the act and 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 you know uh the actress sorry what's what's her name christian uh Christine scott thomas sorry uh her you know she's she's very harsh looking in this film right so so you know you get this impression that she is capable of violence and and people are suspicious of her or outright hostile to her that and so on so and she plays her cards very close to her chest she's relatively silent the whole miscommunication or lack of communication point made very well by helen and and that menace doesn't really go away until very near the end uh in this sense it's a bit like it reminded me of uh the uh vinterberg film the hunt from 2012 i don't know if we discussed this but we it's a film which is about uh Potential act of violence, sexual violence against a child, uh, um, uh, and an accusation made against uh, the Mads, uh, Mads Mickelson character. And there's a sense in which, even though he's kind of ostensibly exonerated, the threat raised by the possible um, act never goes away in the minds of his community. So there is a kind of permanent sort of stain. Uh, regardless of whether the the act actually happened. In this film, the act uh has happened. The the child is is it has been killed as Benjamin points out. We don't know why. Um and there's a sense in which there's a sort of double guilt, guilt for having brought somebody into the world, precisely in, in order that uh this child may suffer in the sense that everybody suffers because suffering is part of life. Uh, and I think this is why many philosophers don't have children because they think too much about that question of suffering, um, and they decide not to uh, bring more suffering into the world. This is certainly an argument that's made by quite a few philosophers, um, but it's a reality. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a fact of life that we will, we will suffer and we will die, and and this is part of the uh, a, a kind of guilt, if we want to say it like that, a kind of. Uh, paying it forward almost <laughs> to uh, the generations that that follow us. And then the, the kind of double guilt of having been responsible for the death of the child, even if, as we, we discover, that this was a, a humane gesture, albeit one perhaps done, uh, illegally, but it was done, nevertheless, in a moral sense, and therefore her her character is 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 somewhat uh, redeemed. Although I, I agree with Benjamin that the shadow of the the darker story is is retained, um, and I think it's how to put it, it's as a kind of exploration of punishment. I think it is insufficient because. It is true that the superior story would have been, what does it mean if we say that someone has served their time, right? Part of our contemporary culture, one of the problems with it is its incapacity to forgive. That that people who haven't committed crimes often, but maybe have said, quote unquote, the wrong thing or have been accused of an impropriety of one kind or another, which has not reached the level of criminality but nevertheless, uh, you know, and we saw that in Me Too, or any you know accusations that float around um, about you know anyone who people have decided they don't like, um, it it becomes impossible to expiate that uh, that act, you know. Whereas it, you could say prison is more humane in the sense that ostensibly there is a finite amount of time which is supposed to roughly correspond to the seriousness of the the crime. We'll see if Sam Bankman freed what happens to him. I'm totally obsessed with the story. I'm not going to talk about Sam Bankman freed anyway. um, But the punishment of course is the death of a child right it, it reminded me uh, of another film it reminded me in this sense of uh, Lars von Trier's 2009 Antichrist where the death of a child is uh, what befalls uh, Charlotte Gainsborough and uh, William Defoe. and I was very obsessed with this film at the time I it, I watched it multiple times in the cinema on my own which is a very unusual act for me I don't not normally like going to the cinema on my own I find it really weird and alienating but I did go and see this film on my own and it's really strange film to see on your own um but there's a they they lose their child he falls out of a a window uh whilst they're having sex and then there's a kind of obvious you know collision of like eros and thanatos and it's it's very psychoanalytical in that sense but there's a scene that reminded me of this film where william defoe who's a kind of analyst or some kind of therapist uh speaks to his wife and asks her um Something like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Um, Or something like this. Well, What are you afraid of, actually? What are you afraid of, is the line that he asks her. But there's something very strange about that question, because what a mother would say, you would expect her to say, is losing my child, right? This would be the thing that you would think would be the worst thing. What are you afraid of? I don't want anything bad to happen to my child, Right. It seems obvious that this would be a perfectly natural and common response uh, to the question, what's the worst thing you can imagine or what are you afraid of? Um, and it's a very strange question in the film, deliberately strange, of course. This is the last von Trier we're talking about because the worst thing has already happened. The thing that she's most afraid of has already happened. So what comes after that question of the the worst thing? right? And I think this is a very, very interesting question of what, uh, what is worse than the worst thing? um and in a way this this film that we're talking about today is is too neat uh for all of its profundity I I think it it could it could have posed this other question which is what's the worst thing after the worst thing like what's what comes after the worst
1: yeah it's kind of true I mean it's interesting because the setting is it's very like I mean it's very bourgeois right <laughs> not that I such an annoying thing to phrase to like a word to use and to describe sort of cultural things but it is I mean it's in a I think it I can't remember because I actually didn't rewatch it. I've seen it so many times, but I didn't rewatch it for this one. So I haven't seen it for like 10 years. But um, it's set in, it's not in Paris. It's in a city like Nantes or something, but it's in a very, this is a very. The
0: university that it's at is the university that the director himself is at. So there's a strong auto fiction element because not only has he given a character his backstory in terms of having visited the prisons, Mm -hmm. but that character also is. In this university setting, which is his university setting, I think it's even his department.
1: Yeah, and it is, you know, it's very much the the sister-in-law has her, you know, her tenured position and they live in a very, very nice house and these are sort of a, a, a bohemian intellectual types. And it is a very kind of um, soft, unedgy film in that sense. Like the, the greatest edge is what's revealed at the end. Um, but I do think, you know... It, there, because we talk about you know you mentioned antichrist and you think about would it be possible to make a film like that today especially it might be for an already established director provided they don't have so many you know personal transgressions that would tarnish their reputation for guardian readers or something like that but um in terms of early career filmmakers or you know making films that establish you um In terms of your voice, I really don't know how possible it would be to create something that has the level of edge of a crime in punishment or an antichrist. And I think this has a lot to do with the material conditions, which mean that those who get to make film at all um, or any kind of art at all or any kind of um, cultural product come from an increasingly more elite background and it's not the fault of the these these artists themselves but this does shape um the political subjectivity and the um and bourgeoisifies the kind of values of what's acceptable in art so it is just interesting you talk about a film like antichrist which was you know it's not a mainstream film but it's like a a successful independent film. Are these the kinds of films that will be um, accepted and well-reviewed and uh, digested and seen to mark culture and given, given a platform? I don't know.
0: Yeah, it, it seems to be getting more difficult for the arthouse films to find their way out to American theaters, certainly. Um, yeah, outside of the big cities in the States, it's getting harder and harder to find a whole lot of them. It used to be that when I would check my you know, the Indiana movie theaters out here, you could find you know, one or two on any given week, you know, interesting kind of maybe not art house art house, but you know, adult movies. And the number that get made now is is a lot smaller than it used to be. There is one coming up uh, called The Whale. Uh, that's uh, Aronofsky, I think. Uh, his yeah. still seemed to make it into the Indiana movie theater. I
1: mean, he's he's already sort of quite a mainstream director. And it is interesting because, like, I, I think A24 films are, like, very, very good. But there is a sort of um, version of an arthouse film, which is sort of a quite uh, culturally recognizable and digestible um, form of arthouse film, which is maybe sort of like, um want to find a word that describes the aesthetic. But you're not getting, um, you're not really getting the, you know, something like Antichrist.
0: If you have to go to Chicago to see it, though, though. has it really succeeded?
2: (laughs) But I mean, I suppose, Mm. you know, with the kind of sort of total disintegration of platforms, I mean... Isn't the implication well? If you want to watch art house films, you should subscribe to yeah, Mubi, or you know, you like it Ed. has to be like this. But it's interesting, you know. that even
1: on things like Mubi, you do get a back catalogue <clears throat> of kind of films from you know, from you know, historic yeah. films. But in terms of contemporary films, and there are a lot of very good films that get made. And I'm not saying that every film has to be like crazily edgy, but it is just in terms of really going there or really being that ambivalent in a really explicit way. Um, and getting us to confront more base, more complex, um, more uh, films that really confront us with not just you know you know like the the return of the repressed in sex or something like that, which I think is a very like well worn trope in terms of like a misreading of what psychoanalysis is, but like something that really confronts us with um, the nature of subject. I, I just don't I don't see, and you see the curation of um, art today. And you, you do have sort of very like um, stuff that is, you know, and I say there's, there's plenty of very good stuff, but stuff that maybe doesn't offend a bourgeois sensibility.
0: You know, thinking about your point earlier about communication, you know, there, there's a couple of different ways we deal with the fact that we can't really communicate, put certain things into words, right? One is to not even try. And as a result, to not say things that really need saying. The fact that this character doesn't talk to her sister is a constant problem throughout the film. It is this obstacle, ultimately, to the relationship fully recovering. And both of them know it on some level, but she won't try to put it into words for the sister. And by the time she's on the line, the sister's just desperate for her to try to put it into words. Just just try. Uh, even if it may not be perfect, to have it in words would be something and that refusal to try to put it into words is almost a, a giving up on the sister. If you believe that it's not even worth trying to explain it to her, then do you really think that she you know, can understand you? Clearly, you don't. The other way to deal with the problem of not quite being able to get what you, what's in your head across to someone else in words, the other side of it is to babble. And to just keep talking and talking and talking and trying different things and saying things in different ways. I don't see this as often in movies or TV, but I see it a lot in real life. A lot of people, when they get into a situation where they can't really, where they're not sure they're being understood, will just keep going. And they'll loop back around to the same point and they'll try to say it in many different ways. And I've I found if I'm in a very difficult situation with somebody, I'm more likely to do that. I'm more likely to just try over and over in different ways to make the same point.
2: Yeah, i am definitely the same. And it is a kind of losing battle. And I, I there's a there's a kind of yeah, an excess of communication which makes everything start to sound false. And it's really awful. Like, you just keep trying to explain something or apologize or, you know, give an explanation or a description. I mean, this is like, obviously, in intrapersonal relationships, this happens sometimes when you're, I don't know, like, trying to defend yourself or explain or do some weird combination of,
0: like, defend. You're looking for the magic words that yeah. will make that person somehow understand. <laughs> I mean... It shows that you believe that they can understand that you're willing to try. Right. So I think it's less insulting than being silent. But also it it doesn't take seriously what's been said if you can just replace it with something else. So it treats words almost like a kind of flippant. You know, sorcerer yeah. magic, where you just try different spells until you find the one that connects.
2: I think so, but I think it's it's a kind of very human admixture of like you know uh, ap- apology, explanation, and self defence, like all mixed in together. You know, like someone saying you did this or you you know like what you did was was bad, and you're like yes, but you know I was just trying to, and I didn't mean to, and and then you're like but you know I I'm sorry, and you know this kind of Really, uh, utterly ineffective um, combination. Yeah, this excess
0: of dialogue. It may <laughs> yeah. be much less beautiful from the point of view of the French film, but I think it's every bit as human.
2: Yeah,
1: but we do live in an age of like. I mean, we've said this so many times. But it's like monologuing. Like, di- despite there being so much talking, like we do a lot of talking. We talk a lot. Um, there, you know, there isn't there isn't real dialogue in society, and there's, there is this sort of like constant. Like tweeting, obviously, the word Twitter is just like babbling on pointlessly, and so many podcasts, so much discourse, so much content, you know. <laughs> but do we ever actually get to the point? Or are we able to get to the point? I mean, maybe, yeah, and it's a response to this sort of like bereftness.
0: If you think about it in terms of the class, you know, the professional class is searching for the words that will somehow activate the politics that doesn't exist.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I
0: Endless talking is a search for the politics that we can never find. Mm.
1: Mm. Sometimes it's right there in front of you. But, yeah, I mean, it's right there. It's kind of obvious what needs to happen, but it can't. It cannot be done, I assume.
0: I mean, what should the professional do? That's the difficult mm. thing, because the professional's do, in a spot do. where if they do the thing, they they might lose their job, they might hurt their career, they might not do what say what the boss wants them to say. So... There's this constant talking to find something that's compatible with keeping one's position that also enables you to accomplish something politically. It's this search for this this magic combination of things all in one go.
2: I think everyone should just chill out. If they have a job, they should do it properly. And most of the time we should do very little because we generally make things work.
0: Worse. But if you're being paid to talk, particularly if you're being paid to talk about <laughs> politics, ah. then this will just come out. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you are being paid to talk, but you're not able to say precisely what you might like to say will result in this constant word vomit.
2: But I think I don't know. I was having this conversation with someone the other day who's a, who's a woman who's also engaged in kind of commentary in America and she was saying that, you know, she still struggles to speak spontaneously. She can't extemporize because she feels like something's on the line and we were discussing it with other people and they're saying well if you start to regard your job as something more like entertainment like it's a job right you're just producing a certain you know feeling in your audience and and um that might take the sting out of it right like it's your it's not like your soul is on the line i mean it is But it you you can't think of it. This is a really
0: tough thing. If you're a (laughs) professional who's paid to make political content that involves extemporaneous speaking, the the political podcaster has a role in society that's very strange because it must sound spontaneous and authentic and it must sound like it comes from your head. And yet it must not say you must not say anything that would get you in trouble or would cause embarrassment to whoever pays for the podcast.
2: Yeah, I mean,
0: it's It's a beautiful contradiction.
2: Well, you say that, but there are lots of podcasts that are attractive or lots of people, I don't know, like who are regarded as subversive, dissident, inappropriate, whatever, who are listened to precisely because that's their brand,
0: right? Uh, And isn't that an interesting, tricky thing? Like, you have to sound like a dissident (laughs) and that has to sound spontaneous and real, but also... Whoever's paying for it can't be upset with the particular character of the dissonant speech. So it's always got to be within a but range. There are
2: there if are if it's dif- being
0: paid for. There are
2: yeah, but there are differences, right, between, I don't know, like let's say if you have like one patron who has a very fixed idea about what the limits of what he or she would like to see, or you have a subscriber model, right, which would be Maybe you get less money and maybe people will drop in and out when you start becoming annoying or they don't like the sound of your voice anymore or this person's had a cold for seven weeks now and why can't they speak (laughs) properly like me? And, you know, they just become like frustrated and they're like, right, I'm going to pay... I'm going to share my five pounds with somebody else. And then maybe you get like another, someone joins up and, you know, and in a way there's no direct uh, uh, sort of, or even indirect thing about what somebody wants to see. Like someone might send a message and go, oh, can you talk about this film? Or well, it's, like-
0: it's the su- subscribers as a whole at that point. They become a kind of audience, which, But it's not know, just so- like in, in, in Plato, you know, when Plato talks about the Athenian demos and how it mm-hmm. ultimately controls the orator because the orator has to say things that please the demos but I think right? that's the not... problem with the the show
2: but the no, but I th- problem I, I think this is too neat this is yeah, too I also deterministic do think that, like,
1: when you say like it's a beautiful contradiction it is like this is the thing that is the like the um the thing that makes life worth living Right. I mean, you could also say, but, but OK, so you could also say, well, we shouldn't be distracted by babbling. We should we should confront politics where it is. But maybe an enjoyment of the babbling, an enjoyment of recognizing that the babbling is a, sy- a symptom of the impotence might lead us to a point where we break the impotence cycle.
0: Well, if, if the person gets popular enough that they actually make real money from the subscribers then they depend on the subscribers for a living and that gradually affects what they make because they have to cater to the subscribers who ultimately pay for what they do. If they have other sources of money, such that they don't depend on the subscribers, then they may have other ulterior motives that may be completely separate and distinct from the interests of the subscribers. And that can be an issue too. insofar so far as the subscribers are ordinary people. So, there's always something kind of not quite right about podcasts that make serious money. Always something not quite right about them. Well, afford- and that's why you, know, you really <laughs> have to have a life cycle, you know, Podcasts have a life cycle And if they get too big Then they have to die
2: Benjamin you're cutting Too close to the bone Fortunately we don't Make enough money Off of the lack To be overdetermined By the desires Of our patrons So in a way We but, are free We are but, free Because say if we like
1: But we are We are only able To do it In so far as we Like have Like if 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 we were Just doing So yeah This, this doesn't This isn't A money making Enterprise for us But um <laughs> But we have to be able to, you know, if we were, if we were um, having to work 90 hours a week in a factory, there's no way we could do. You know, we could everybody about depends on
0: something. Yeah, everybody yeah. gets their money from somewhere. It affects necessarily what you say, yeah. where you get it from. It matters. Okay, but,
2: but like, but Benjamin, I is
1: the only thing.
2: No, and, and this yeah. is the thing. I, I mean, I, I get that like economic and material circumstance dictate consciousness, and therefore speech. And you know, of course, we are completely determined by our material circumstances, but we're not completely, completely determined. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why would we bother saying anything? We would just say, uh, like, I'm Comrade One Nine Seven Three and my class position. Because we feel free, <laughs> even though we're you know, not. We have huh? the
0: the, as, like Galen Strassen says, we have the. Ec- Th- this uh, self-experience, which doesn't correspond to reality. We have this constant sense that we are free, no, no,
1: but the contradiction, even though we're not really. The contradiction between the sense of freedom and the lack of freedom is where we can create and we can we can make life worth living.
0: Well, it's what drives us to babble, because we're constantly trying to prove something that is false. We're constantly trying to prove that we are free of the conditions, and yet we are not free of the conditions. So we are constantly babbling in a bid to say, no, no, so, no, I'm not so just you,
1: you, so a product what you saying, of what you're saying, that you, you see speaking on the podcast as just a result of the mirage experience of having agency, when you know deep down that you don't, and it's completely pointless.
0: There's something fundamentally quixotic about trying to do politics in 2022 or about trying to do any form of public speaking or any kind of, of public performance in 2022. Because the individual in 2022, uh, even leaving aside metaphysical arguments about whether free will exists in the kinds of states that we have, the kind of politics mm-hmm. that we have, what the individual says is in, completely inconsequential.
2: Benjamin, you're, you're perky... Uh, nihilism is, is a bit much. I, I think there's something I would like to defend. Maybe this is reactionary, conservative and all of these things, but there is something idiosyncratic and singular about the voice, the individual, the relation, the interaction. Right, mm-hmm. which is okay from one perspective, reducible to class, position, material circumstance, the depressing pointlessness of everything, like the the fact that nothing we say or do will make any difference. But it's but there is this other thing, which is like the voice. Apart from anything else, like you know, we all have different voices. Everyone has a different voice. We we don't you know speak uh, like like a, like the same robot. We have I.
0: I'm not being nihilistic. Everything matters, but our speech doesn't affect it politically. So it matters that we live in a society that is structured by these impersonal forces that utterly dominate ordinary people individually or even insofar as they attempt to do things collectively. The organizations of ordinary people are incredibly weak in this moment. Now, the only way that we could potentially change that circumstance would be to first acknowledge that so much of what everybody does is a complete waste of time in terms of actually changing anything. And if we could acknowledge that, then we might start to confront that we are in this fundamentally unfree situation.
2: But yeah. I think I not think just is...
0: metaphysically, but practically.
2: But this also mistakes some of what politics is or the social is. Like what we do makes a great deal of difference to the people around us, right? We might not call that politics. We might call right, that... right.
0: But I'm talking about the public speaking that <laughs> what the professional does on the podcast you know of talking about politics or performing.
1: Isn't it just that there is no public anymore? It's just everything's been privatized, so everything is owned by capital. So everything that is uttered, like, basically, you can't, you can't when the public, and it could, there's always this misunderstanding, because, you know, you say like, oh, what you're doing public speaking, but it's not public. It's not public. If the terrain in which it's delivered has been commoditized, then it's actually just private with the illusion of public.
0: Well, so it could be in a private civil society organization, which participates in, in public, like a political party can be a private organization which engages with public discourse. But most of what we do now doesn't even rise to the level of that. But most of what we do now is just talking to other people and uh, yeah, it, it can be entertaining, it can be interesting, it can be philosophically enervating, but it doesn't do anything. Very little of what anybody says anymore does anything. But
1: I do think that there is a way out of this deadlock in terms of, like, not to say like we've got the answer because we do But for instance, all of this stuff to speak about it in a way, in an analytic way, reveals the structure and gets us to confront it. Like, if you have enough, like, I kind of feel like the human subjects have basically four ways that they exist four, four like dominant emotional states depression, melancholy, anxiety, or enjoyment. And I do think that basically the situation of the declassed millennial or whatever, that, you know, the division, basically. So the working class, this would be depressed, right? Like, not, like already knows the reality of the class system and the economic system. The, the professional or aspirant professional or, you know, proletarianized professional class person, quote unquote, believes in the system. Because through education, through the university discourse, which is the university discourse has the illusion of rationality, logic and truth, but is actually just like a discourse that papers over that is used to, to disguise capitalist undercurrent and is at a loss because they experience the reality of the material conditions. But the explanation that is embedded in, incredibly psychically is uh, one that buys into sort of capitalist propaganda and this leaves you anxious. And then the billionaire is melancholic. These are the people in like the White Lotus who are confronted with the blunt impotence of having money and they're miserable as well. But there is a solution, which is enjoyment, which is enjoying what you don't have. And So, what could happen is the anxious millennial gradually comes to understand the material conditions and so becomes depressed like, other working-class people, and enough depressed people who understand the material conditions, maybe we'll do something.
0: Well, This is the the consciousness-raising argument. It's a long way of getting back to that point about consciousness-raising that many people have made, and that people, every time there's a whole period where nothing is happening in left politics, people go, let's raise consciousness, let's talk to people about the situation and describe it
1: unconsciousness no, it raising work. works unconsciousness no, raising no
0: kind of talking to get no, people to just, just change their attitude raising
1: works isn't talking unconsciousness raising is so okay it's not it's the opposite of talking podcast talking okay so Adrian and I when we set up estranged right we decided to do it because the idea was that you have to address your public whether this is like true or not because everything is commoditized and we will have to earn money and you don't want to go there, say anything too bad, otherwise you'll get cancelled. But you can only understand yourself in conversation. But it's not talking with an agenda. It's talking and listening for the Freudian slips and all this kind of stuff that gets you to understand the nature of your own subjectivity and desire and the nature of subjectivity as such. And That's only possible through unconsciousness raising. Consciousness raising just like completely distorts the understanding of what like human subjectivity is. But that understanding of what human subjectivity is might, I don't know, but be able to give us information just as like the scientist who confronts, who uses the scientific method to confront reality and therefore understand it and then act accordingly accordingly that we can understand the way human subjectivity works and create libidinal systems that, aren't, that don't entrap us, like capitalism.
0: So but I do then, think there is know, an create, outside of it. You know, that, what, what's the doing? Yeah, the the no issue doing. is there's that no there's doing. no doing, There's, no, but there's no, doing. but there has to be doing no, if we were I to actually so. get rid of capitalism so. and replace it with something else. We'd have to do something. It would have to be okay. the something else that we'd have to institute somehow through some kind of politics. We'd have I think the not doing something. comes
2: first. Can we we're not, not doing do politics? First. Like, like, we don't have to do politics. Like, politics should basically just be no. where pluralistic, different people from exactly. different positions but come and politics. negotiate.
0: That's politics. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But that's but doing. Just, that involves no, action. No, no, the issue is that do. there's nothing no, that we do. get to do
1: the doing, you have to do the not doing first.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's and, uh, like politics should be almost nothing in people's lives. The problem is every uh, people think that everything is political and this is a, a massive problem. And it isn't. Politics is literally... Something like uh, making different people who come from different positions and who have different interests uh, be the least unhappy that everyone could be, although there will still be unhappiness and suffering because that's life. You know that it's something like that. You know, right? and everything yeah. else is sort of outside, it. like your, your family, your hobbies, yeah. your. You know, but that's- there's
0: this rub, which is that fundamentally, the whole society is built on the exploitation of a slave class.
1: Yeah, that's, that, this is absolutely true. This is absolutely and true. And it's not
0: enough to just go, well, we all have to talk about it and and come to you know, pluralize with each other. It, there's a slave class that funds all of the talking. And while we're talking, these people are working, and we are all, through various different means, acquiring some portion of the money that they generate with their work, and we use that to fund the talking. And if we don't talk about the people who are doing the work so that we can talk, then there's no justification for our talking.
1: No, but this is we exactly have to talk it, about
0: the, the the situation of the exploited working class and what is to be done about that condition. But and if we're not talking about that, uh, you know, then we are yeah, complicit. If we're not at least trying but to help. But what does talking
2: about that do? Like, we've, we've been talking about a film on a podcast. Well, like, yeah. this is like, how is this useful to the working class? I mean, literally, <laughs> okay, well, is, no relation.
0: It needs to be. It I does need it to it be, does, though. It does, but
1: I don't think that you can get to the point of talking about the working class without a confrontation with the lack and desire. <laughs> so, well, we, basically, all this because you always always exploit, even if you say you're talking about the working class, it'll just be a performative capitalized upon, you know, way of mystifying class relations. But people can only confront the trauma of the economy by understanding how fucking, like, dumb it is, given that you will never be fulfilled by desire. And capitalism relies on the lie that you'll be fulfilled through, you know, the lost object, which you won't. But whatever you do, even if you just say, we have to talk about working class people, what will happen is if you still are libidinally brought into that dynamic, you'll talk about working class people, but it'll just be a way to, like, fetishize or mystify yeah, actual exploitation. but th- that's my
0: point. Like that's everything that everybody does in political shows is that we kind of mystify and fetishize the degree to which you know, we're, we're moving anywhere. We pretend that we have something to say about that when we don't, or we pretend that we have somewhere to go with that when we don't. And it's it's not okay to pretend to be doing politics when you're not. At the same time, I don't think it's okay to not try to do politics at all.
2: Heh <laughs> heh. I'm not exactly saying that but look it's very obvious So we have a kind of entire discourse and class and you know Helen's talking about like as, which avoids talking about economics right it avoids talking about the reality of exploitation in the, in the materialist sense so you have all these people who are kind of probably fit on some deep level for extremely guilty right and we haven't yet what I want to say is that like we haven't yet come to terms with these extremely basic anthropological categories right that we all suffer from we all feel to do with like guilt and envy, I don't know, desire, desire for recognition, blah, 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 right? We're still the same kind of human being as we always have been, right? And what we have now is a kind of class discourse of the PMC or whatever, which is a way of like not directly talking about certain things, right? but And replacing that discussion of economics and class relations with a discourse that somehow uh, seeks to—I don't know—like mitigate guilt, understood, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is badly understood. Right? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's understood as some inter- internal uh, individualistic thing, as opposed to a form of collective uh, injustice or asymmetry. Right? Yeah, like so, exactly. people take take guilt upon themselves, and they're like, "Oh, well, I feel less guilty now because I've identified as as some sort of oppressed." person and therefore i don't have to share my my burden of complicity in the system right like it's an obvious escape mechanism because that because i agree with benjamin look there is a lack of um Collective, uh, capacity to do things. But obviously, this discourse, which individualizes and personalizes guilt and seeks to, you know, get people out of this collective recognition is making it worse, right? Exactly. It, it yeah. makes it worse. It makes it harder to have any form of solidarity, internationalism, recognition of shared economic interest with, let's say, the, the, the recently arrived immigrant who, who brings your, you know your fucking delivery food to your house exactly. right who is this person to you member of the <laughs> laptop class right
1: no i entirely agree with you and this is where un- unconsciousness re- raising comes in because the only thing that we all share like every one of us the delivery driver coming to our door and the lap the person pontificating on a podcast is an unconscious it's the thing that unites us all and it's like we can like, of course, like everybody's a communist to a certain extent. You ask the like greatest right-wing Republican what their vision of heaven is. And it's like, well, then everybody gets what they want. And everybody has, you know, nobody is exploited. Everything's nice. And it's like that. It's not enough. And what we're seeing at the moment is precisely a... a like a use of political discourse to mystify rather than actually being able to get to politics, which means, I think, that something is missing in our understanding of how we get humans to politics, which I think is where psychoanalysis can help us. And not necessarily psychoanalytic practice, but psychoanalytic, well, psychoanalytic discourse or analytic discourse that could shape certain practices that are able to like help large numbers of people. And this is what I think film this is why I'm so passionate about film, because I think film can do that. But obviously, with the material constraints that we have, is it impossible to make a psychoanalytic film? But um, the thing is, what you were saying about politics, it's like, that's precisely, it's precisely what politics is. It's like, how do you manage the commons? You know, how do you, everybody having different desires? And we've, we've like, reified politics into, like, I'm a leftist. I'm this, I'm that. And it's just a way to mystify. And basically,
0: well, the the, the Arendtian kind of post-scarcity, everybody can just talk about their differences and bring people together through language. That kind of Arendtian discourse model of politics is predicated on having escaped some of the constraints. So
1: I think uh, Hannah Arendt misunderstands the psychoanalysis. But anyway.
0: Well, uh, yeah, it's... The Aristotelian politics which occurs among the people who are free is not a politics which deals with or is interested in the people who are not able to fully participate in society because they are locked into these uh, roles that are not real roles, roles that are not fully satisfying roles, roles that alienate them from different aspects of the human experience. Uh, in part because the people who construct, you know, when we construct those roles for workers, it's often on the basis of some kind of Aristotelian conceit that they're not capable of more than that, or that they have a, some kind of lower or inferior nature or aren't able to fully benefit from full participation in society. Now, this is the kind of, of dynamic that we fundamentally have worked in, insofar as you know, so much political thought is Aristotelian so, I, I didn't mean all of this as a criticism of you guys and of what you guys are doing.
1: Oh, no, I didn't take it as a criticism <laughs> at no, all. No, no, no. And I'm quite, yeah, feel like yeah, given so this situation, I, I I'm quite don't, don't think it, what I do. It but,
0: requires yeah, a defense of, say, psychoanalysis or it requires no, a defense of, I don't think of, this is say, a
1: defense, though. Just just saying saying what you think is the way it operates. I don't think it's a defence. I think it's just... A I, I, yeah,
2: look, I think it's probably a symptom of the frustration that we all feel and um, precisely yeah. in, in the lack of... Uh, you know, the, the fact the various forms of, of a collective identification, whether they're based on lack or based on a positive attribute, are are completely divided and smashed. And, and then you end up with mm-hmm. a stupid discourse, which is a like a kind of low level, bad Schmittianism, where it's like friend, enemy, oh, good exactly. person, bad person. But that's not even a morality. If this was a coherent morality, at least that would be interesting. But it's and not. I think, we, I
1: think we all agree, right? I think we absolutely all agree, like that the solution is political. But it's like, how do we get? How do we allow for politics to happen? Given, as you say, Benjamin, like the constraints.
0: I, I think that part of what we need to do is kind of hit rock bottom yeah. and kind of confront yeah. the despair. I think, yeah. Post Corbyn, post Bernie Sanders, there is a despair that a lot of people. Don't fully want to confront because they are operating political organizations or outlets which get their money from these people continuing to believe that these movements are going somewhere or have traction. And so these people are wasting a lot of money from people who are trying to avoid despair and are trying to manufacture a feeling of hope. And so a kind of parasitic relationship is formed between two different sets of people, both of whom want to avoid a fundamental reality. The one is the person who got a job in this kind of political media. And who wants to hold on to that job and their job can only exist if people believe that there's hope in a particular kind of politics. Mm -hmm. That politics has failed. But the media organizations and the uh, nonprofits and so on, those are still functioning and they're continuing to roll on by perpetuating a false hope narrative that causes people to donate money. Right.
1: Yeah. And conversely, the
0: donor also wants to believe that there's still hope in this kind of thing and that no fundamental reckoning needs to occur and i think what needs to happen is a moment of acute despair where these people are forced to confront the total failure of what was tried in the kind of 2016 2017 20 you know late 10s mid mid to late 10s period and then uh, that i think can create an opportunity for natality where the despair can drive people to act in new and different ways but if there's no confrontation mm-hmm. with the totality of the failure then People waste their money funding garbage that doesn't work. And so I think we need to have a kind of a fundamental reckoning. And it was, you know, I used to do a podcast that was part of that political scene. And when it became clear that that had totally failed and that the movement had totally failed and that it wasn't going to get better, the thing to do was to fold up the podcast rather than continue to pretend that there was something happening that was Mm -hmm. generative. Or pretend that there was a political movement that people could be part of and be involved with, rather than say that to people so that I could continue to have a means of being on a podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, the right thing to do was to stop. To stop at that point and say, guys, it failed. And now we all have to rethink. Now we have to start over and rethink what we're doing Mm -hmm. and come up with something new that actually fits the conditions, because what we thought fit the conditions didn't. We got it wrong. And we fucked up. And so once you acknowledge that and you say it to everybody, then everybody can be part of this rethinking. But if you're rethinking in the back of your head while you continue to do a podcast where you raise money from people by perpetuating the idea that, well, maybe somehow this will eventually work out and the squad will eventually work out. Yeah. Or maybe these people in the Republican party will eventually, you know, realign and they'll become different people, whichever one of these, you know, kind of, of uh, desperate Hope narratives you climb onto after that, uh, that denies the audience the opportunity to, to rethink as well. And the reason that you're denying the audience the opportunity to rethink is because you want to keep their money.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, yeah.
0: That's what people need to do. They need to, to go into the pit of despair, confront the totalizing failure, and only then can we start to come out of it. And this show, we kind of are, are exploring you know, possibilities. But, because we're trying to come out of it.
1: I don't agree with you because I actually think and not to be like psychoanalysis again. <laughs> but like it only works when you hit rock bottom. It's the same as the 12 steps. Like you can't actually Yeah, get no, no it but that's what i going to say bottom. you're talking yeah.
2: like an addict. Right, this is the language of an addict, right? Like this is like oh we're addicted to politics or thinking about politics in this way. What you've got to do is like lose your wife and all your friends and all your money and get kicked out of your house and then you'll be like, "Oh shit, I really had a problem. I need to sort it out and speak and go and speak in the group and go yeah actually you know i people I,
0: are addicted to the money they're addicted to the money that they get people from doing this kind of politics. money
2: people have to live
1: people like, do have is... to live but there's a two degree <laughs> yeah. there is two degrees we're right addicted to water there's, too there's two degrees right because humans humans are always like there's the objective reality of what you need and then because we're we are Fucked up by subjectivity, we're denatured by subjectivity. There is this other thing. And you know, what things like, I mean, I I do have, I'm not that much of a fan of satire as a genre, but what something like the blue lot the white lotus does is it confronts us with, you know, it shows how the billionaire class is, you know, the impotence of money, for instance. But we are addicted. You know, there is a difference between you need, this is, the, this is the, the like ambivalent nature and the difficult thing is you need money to survive. You absolutely do. And the trouble, one of the problems is though, is that all of this sort of say laptop class, if they were to accept that there isn't this prestigious thing for them or that in prestige, there's a lion prestige and this is just a, a fob off, to get you to sacrifice yourself and to not even go after your desire and pursue what you want, but instead sacrifice yourself, you know, as an unpaid person. Because by the way, aside from the working class, there's a huge amount of sacrifice. Well, we call it, what we call working class is complicated, right? But like, there's a huge, there's hundreds of thousands, millions of graduates being exploited and indebted and indentured, you know, to generate value. But there is not, there's like nothing there. I mean, what do you do? You, you can go home and you can live on benefits or something. But you know, there is a thing of you can only, I mean, I do agree. It's like the language of an addict, but maybe, yeah, but there is an element of addiction. And I do think that prestige and mystification and the belief in the totality of fulfillment gets us to painfully not... Get to step zero, which is reaching rock bottom, which is okay. a confrontation with material c- circumstances, well, and I think that is a real doing, problem.
2: One way of doing this is to break the status deadlock, right? So the fantasy and we discuss this in terms of generation repeatedly, but we've had generations in the West that have like turned on, tune in, and dropped out, right? Like it's a possibility for the middle class to refuse the status game right or at least sections of the middle class unfortunately what happened to those people was that they became silicon valley and now we live in the fucking acid trip of our parents which is an absolute nightmare yeah so, no, i mean
1: but you can like, you can also reject you can you can confirm <laughs> the thing you're rejecting in a performative rejection
2: Right. So I I don't I don't know what we do, because unfortunately, intelligence has an uncanny way of of like turning everything into the worst possible outcome, uh, because this seems to be the kind of creature that we are. So even if you say I refuse the system, you end up becoming the system Mm -hmm. again. But, you know, we could have another mass movement of refusal um, to play the game, which would be at least be interesting. Um, May you live in interesting times, the great Chinese curse. Uh I don't know. It's um how do you get people to to see where they are in the system and and what their shared interests are with other people? It's very difficult. We can't even do it at a basic human level. Like in a post-Christian world we, where we don't share any kind of moral schema or religious uh idea, we, there is nothing that unites us. We are totally relativistic, fragmented individuals. And this is this is you could say that was intentional or you could say it was an accident or it's a byproduct of a particular economic situation. Uh I, I don't know how we're ever gonna get there. I think I think it is going to have to be through negativity, but this is what Marx tried to do with the you have nothing to lose but your trains, you're the the class with of nothing, if you like. You know, there is a nothing at the heart of the proletariat. The proletariat is like the empty subject. Um I don't know. I don't know. Well, we do. We? You
1: know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, all all that we know is Oops. that something has to change. But yeah, how do we? But I do think I do think that yeah, consciousness raising doesn't work.
0: Yeah, there's for a free person. There's got to be a back and forth. I think between action and contemplation. There are times when you're acting on the basis of what you think will work, and there are times when you have to rethink. Times when you have to think about what it is that might work what it is that you ought to be doing with your life, what kinds of roles are meaningful. There are times when you're performing roles and times when you're thinking about what roles you ought to be performing. And if we don't have the freedom to go into this contemplative period because we are too desperately poor, we don't have the resources, we don't have the option, uh, then that's what I mean by addiction in the sense that we really have no other choice but to continue to pursue the money as far as it goes, uh, unless we're willing to take on board a a destitution. Yeah, I I, I felt and I still feel that there's a need for contemplation. There's a set of people who are trying to continue to act on the basis of old contemplations, and they need to stop for a moment and think for a little bit and then come back. You know, those people don't need to go away forever, but they need to go away for a little bit and think and then come back.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of people don't
0: have the option to do that. Anyway, we're over an hour, as as Nina has, has rightly pointed out, and um, so we're going <laughs> to have to stop. We've got
1: heated, everybody. A bit of entertainment for one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we'll go. We'll go and do the B side now, uh, and uh, I think we might talk about forgiveness, possibly. <laughs> that was mentioned. You know, yeah, let's forgiveness do that. as a as a topic. Maybe we'll talk about that. Okay. So, thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day.
2: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.